All right. Good evening, everybody. Online, in person, thanks for coming. We are uh, picking up on the bottom of page 11, lesson two. Um, we finished up last week looking at the Trinity. Um, top of the page, we looked at a couple of those pictures that kind of try and depict uh, the Trinity um, anyway in artwork. Uh, impossible to do, but um, gives you kind of some idea as to how people try and wrap their heads around how God is three and yet one. Um, we are going to pick up with God's profile uh, tonight. You see up on the screen. Uh, but before we do, I just wanted to start off uh, giving you the opportunity if there are any questions um, that maybe we didn't get to last week or came up between then and now, um, opportunity to ask those. Okay, well, if they do, just let me know. Um, we'll, we'll stop as we go. But let's continue with uh, God's qualities. Uh, what is God like? So we, we looked at the, the aspect of that God is triune, but now we're going to look at a, a number of passages in the Bible um, that sort of describe um, God in, you know, sort of different ways, different qualities um, and, and attributes. So here is, is one example. John chapter four, we read, God is spirit. And his worshipers must worship him in spirit and truth. So how would you fill in that blank? God is a spirit, right? Um, we, we shouldn't expect God to have a physical body. We shouldn't expect him to have some sort of visible presence. Of course, we're going to see that this is different um, when we get to Jesus. And we'll talk about that in a, a bunch of upcoming lessons, um, Jesus specifically. Um, but God is spirit another one psalm 42 says my soul thirsts for god for the living god um god is living um and maybe that seems like uh sort of an obvious thing nobody wants to worship a dead god but it really is one of those things i think that separates christianity from uh, many of the the religions in the world um Especially, you know, you think of like ancient Greek mythology and, and Roman, Roman mythology and, and even Eastern religions, uh, religions like um, uh, Buddhism and Confucius, uh, Confucianism, things like that, where um, there, there is no need for really um, a, a living God. It's based on a set of principles. And whether or not Confucius or whether or not Buddha was ever actually uh, a real person, um, actually a real God, doesn't matter because it's based solely just on whether or not you, you kind of buy into um, the, the, the thoughts, the same teachings. Um, but with Christianity, everything in Christianity rests on this fact um, that we have a God who took on human flesh, who died, but rose again. Um, and so our God is alive forever, and that matters. And if that is not true, then nothing that he says matters. But if that is true, if Jesus truly is God in the flesh, and he rose back to life, um, then everything he says must be true, right? Because that's who he is. So um, we have a living God. 
Deuteronomy 33, verse 27 says, The eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Uh, this is one of those adjectives, one of those words, one of those concepts that we have that I think we, 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 we talk about and we reference from time to time, but it's much more challenging and much more difficult to really grasp and comprehend than we realize. What does it mean that God is eternal? Most people will say, well, it means that God has no beginning and God has no end. And sure, that's a part of it. But that's really our human attempt to define something that from our perspective and in our language is indefinable. Um, you and I as human beings are finite creatures. So everything for us is past, present, future. So when we think about what does it mean that God is not bound by time? Well, he doesn't have a beginning and he will have no end. Um, and that's what it means to be eternal. Well, sure, that's part of it. But it's more than that. Um, it's that God is not bound by time or space or anything else that limits you and me as human beings. And so God is outside of time and space, that he is eternal, um, that time to him is, is really nothing. And so there's a passage in the Bible that says, to God, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day that has just gone by. Um, the point of that is to say um, the reference that God has when it comes to time is different than what you and I understand because he's above time. And so you can really think of it this way. And this is kind of, this blows my mind every time I try and consider it, but there really is no past, present, future for God. Everything is in the present. Everything is before him. And so we're going to run into passages in the Old Testament where God talks about things that in our timeline and from our perspective happen in the future, but God talks about them like they've already happened. How can that be? Well, because he's already seen it happen, right? Because he's not chugging along day after day, month after month, year after year, like you and I are. He's above and beyond all of that. God is eternal. I, to try and wrap your heads around, if you grabbed the uh, if you grabbed uh, the extra reading for tonight um, on the back table, uh, I, I like the way that the author tries to explain it there. And, and the way that he puts it is to try and understand God, that he is triune, that he is eternal, is, is sort of like trying to explain to stick figures what three dimensions means. So you think of a stick figure, it has height, it has width, it has uh, width, it has no depth, right? That's the third dimension. Um, and if you're a stick figure trying to converse with, trying to understand, trying to comprehend what a whole other dimension would mean and look like and feel like is impossible, right? That's what we're dealing with when it comes to really who is God and what is he like? What does it mean that he is eternal? What does it mean that he is triune? I'm two-dimensional. I'm just a stick figure. Um, God is this beautiful three-dimensional God that is above and beyond who I am and what I have experienced and therefore what I can comprehend. Okay, so take a look at that reading. Um, I think it's, it's interesting how the author puts that. So God is eternal. Another passage, Genesis 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God almighty. Um, what does that mean? God is almighty. Um, we're going to toss out a couple Latin words at you. Always fun to learn another language. Um, the, the Latin word for this is omnipotent. 
Um, you see the word omni there, that's just kind of the Latin um, prefix for all, and then the word potent. Um, if something is potent, it's powerful. God has omnipotent. He has all power. Um, John, John 21, 17, Peter uh, admits this about Jesus. We just looked at this actually a couple of Sundays ago. Um, this is when Jesus meets John and the, some of the disciples on the Sea of Galilee and gives them a miraculous catch of fish and restores Peter and forgives him. And, and Jesus asks Peter, um, Peter, do you love me? And Jesus says, uh, or Peter says, Lord, you know all things. Um, we got another Latin phrase here. Um, to be all-knowing, um, God is omniscient, right? So you see the word science there? Um, science is just a Latin word for knowledge. That's what science is. It's just knowledge. Um, God knows all things. Um, is that a good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> um, the answer to that is yes, right? Um, and, and I think especially now in, in, in kind of the viewpoint and from the perspective of the gospel that we've, we've looked at and learned, um, this is a good thing, right? Um, God knows who I am. He knows everything I've done, I've done. I don't need to hide any of my sins from him, any of my failures, any of my weaknesses. He already knows them and still he comes to live and suffer and die and rise for you, for me. Um, he is all-knowing. Um, and so it, it's a comforting thing for us. Jeremiah 23, 24, uh, the Lord asks this question, do I not fill heaven and earth? Um, <clears throat> in the Bible, it, it talks about this. Other people ask the question, um, you know, where can I go to hide from God? I can go down into the deepest depths. I can climb the highest mountain. There is nowhere that I can go that I can hide from God. And this is why. Um, it's not just that God is super fast and can be in a lot of different places in the blink of an eye. It's that God fills all things um, in every way. And so um, that God is everywhere, omnipresent, right? A little easier one, that God is all present, okay? We looked at this one in, in our first lesson, Leviticus 19, be holy because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Um, our God is holy. He is set apart. There is no one. There is nothing. There is no other God like him. Um, holy. Deuteronomy 32, we've got a couple. Um, God, a faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. God is faithful, upright, and just. Um, and all of those are just absolutely beautiful ways to describe and things that you would want your God to be. And I think faithful is one of those words that maybe we don't oftentimes think about when it comes to God, but it is absolutely something that we want all of the people in our lives to be whether it's a spouse, whether it's a friend, um, whether it's a parent, whether it's a, 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 a company, right, who's hired you. you. You just want people around you who are faithful to you. Um, and what does that mean? Faithful means when someone makes a promise, they keep it, right? 
Um, and so what a wonderful thing to consider that our God, because he is a God of promises, that's what he does. He makes countless promises. And to know that he is faithful is to say that God keeps every single one. Um, God is upright. Um, he knows and does always what is right. And then finally, he is just. Um, he's, he's fair. He does the right thing. Um, we kind of keep coming back to this picture of being in a courtroom. What does that mean to have a just judge? Well, a just judge punishes the guilty and he sets the innocent free. Um, well, shouldn't that be our doom then? Because we, we, we regularly admit we are the guilty ones. Yes. But remember, um, your sins, my sins have been punished in Christ. So God can forgive us. This is what we talked about at the beginning of our last lesson, right? Why can't God just forgive? Did, did Jesus really have, have to die? Jesus paid our debt in full. Um, our sinful debt to God and to one another, um, Jesus has paid that. And therefore, God can still be just. He can still punish the sinful. Um, uh, he can still punish the sinner in Jesus and forgive you and me, right? And maintain that, that justice. Exodus 34, a bunch of them here, great passages. Um, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Um, pick one, right? Um, we see faithfulness there again. Um, God is slow to anger. Oh, thank goodness. He's patient with us. Um, he doesn't fly off the handle. Um, he doesn't make us a rash or a snap decision. He is forgiving. Um, and yet there it is, the last one. He does not leave the guilty unpunished. He is just. Um, and we'll talk about that in an upcoming lesson about why we need God to do that. Um, only a good God would punish sin. Um, we'll talk about that in an upcoming lesson. So get all those up on the screen. All right, a couple more. Psalm 145, uh, verse 9. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. I like that word compassion. Um, when we think about it, we think of somebody who has kind of like a tender heart, right? And, and that's true. And that's definitely part of it. Um, but literally the word compassion, if you break it down, um, it's another Latin word. It's a compound word. Compassion means that you are someone who is willing to possum, willing to suffer, come with someone else. Um, so you have a friend who's going through a breakup or lost their job. Um, and it's kind of that picture of you climbing down into the pit with them and weeping with them and crying with them. You're entering into their suffering. You're not going to let that person suffer alone. To be compassionate is to have that willing heart to suffer with another. Um, instead of just kind of tapping them on the shoulder and saying, you know, good luck. Um, no, I'm going to get down into the mud um, 
and, and, and into the pit and into the mess of your life with you and suffer with you um, so that you do not suffer alone. I love that, that picture, that God is compassionate, that he suffers with us. Exodus 3, verse 14, this is, uh, I preached on this a number of, uh, well, I guess it's probably a little over, maybe a couple of months ago. Um, this is the account of Moses and the burning bush, right? Um, and, and Moses, uh, the Lord is sending Moses to, to Egypt to, to, to set his people free. And Moses says, well, who should I tell the Israelites has sent me? And here God says to Moses, I am who I am is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. And there it is again, right? Um, whenever you and I talk about ourselves, again, we have to talk about past, present, and future. Um, I have to talk about how young I was and how good-looking I used to be and <laughs> how much better shape um, I, I, I used to be. All of those kinds of things. It's, it's in the past. It's not coming back. Um, or that I hope to one day be, right? Um, but everything for God is present. God just says, I am. I, I am who I am. Um, and, and so a lot of people will use this to say, well, God doesn't change. And it's like, yeah, that's, that's true. Um, and that's part of it. But I would say even more so, it's just this picture of God's eternal and abiding presence, that he always just is. There is no God was, God will be. Um, and, and if you keep reading on in this section, um, I think really kind of the point of this is to say, um, the Lord will go on to say, I am, if you remember, I am the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now that's amazing because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have been dead for hundreds of years. And yet God doesn't say, well, I used to be their God when they were alive. He says, I am their God, implying what? That he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. So because we have a living God, we too, his people are always alive. And this is why Jesus can make the promise, whoever lives and believes in me will never die, right? Um, that promise of life eternal. Um, I add this one also in there because what's interesting is some people you know, they, they struggle with this idea, and rightly so, again, of God being triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, Jesus seems like he's always referencing God the Father as being true God, and, and he's kind of lesser than. Uh, but here's an example where um, if you look up in, in your Bible in John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus encounters a, a group of Pharisees, and they're, they're, they're challenging him as they always tried to do. Um, and they, they asked him who he was, and they said, you know, tell us again plainly if you are the Christ. Um, and, and Jesus says, I have told you, but you don't believe. Um, and, and they make a reference to Abraham being their father. Um, and they're good. They're good with God because they're, they're blood relatives of Abraham. And if Abraham was good to God and we can trace our lineage back to him, then we're good with God too. And, and Jesus says, before Abraham was born... I am. Now, again, that's bad English, right? That doesn't make any sense. But theologically, doctrinally, what is Jesus saying? He's referencing this name, this name of God, I am. And Jesus is saying, 
That's me. I was there at the burning bush. I am. Um, Jesus was not just saying, I'm older than Moses. I was around before Moses, before Abraham. Um, Jesus is saying, you know, that, that special name that you guys have for God, I am um, Jehovah, that the name of God that you don't even say because you're so terrified of it. Um, he says, that's me. So some people ask the question, you know, where does Jesus ever claim that he's God? Here's one. Um, because the end of that story is the Pharisees don't look at Jesus and say, hey, um, we, we disagree with you. You're not that old. You're, you're, you, you have not been around before Abraham or Moses. Um, and so we're going to walk away now. No, they try and stone Jesus to death. Um, they try and drag him uh, off and, and, and throw him off of a cliff. They want to kill him because they know what he's claiming is that he is God. He's taking the title that alone belongs to God, okay? There's another example of a passage sort of like that, Isaiah 44, verse 6. We looked at this at the beginning of the lesson um, to kind of illustrate the fact that there is only one God, Isaiah 44. The Lord says, I am the first and the last. Apart from me, there is no God. If you look up the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 1, um, there Jesus does a lot of speaking um, in that first chapter as he gives to John specific letters to write to seven different churches in the province of Asia. And he begins by telling John who he is, describing um, who he is as Jesus, as the Lamb of God, as the Son of God. And he takes this verse from Isaiah 44, verse 6, and he applies it to himself. Um, he uses the Greek words alpha and omega, right? Um, he says, I am the alpha and omega. Um, that's the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet. So for us, it's like saying, I'm the A and the Z, right? The beginning and the end, the first and the last. Um, so here again, Jesus is taking something that God has said applies only to himself. And Jesus says, that's me. Um, so he is the only God. Colossians chapter 2. Here's where we said, you know, this starts to get interesting and we're going to talk about this. Colossians 2 says, remember, we look, Jesus or God is a spirit, right? Um, no physical form, no physical body. And yet in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. So Jesus is true God and true man. Um, and so Jesus, who is true God, does have a physical body, okay? Um, the, the incarnation of Jesus. This is what we celebrate at Christmas, right? Not just that a really, really, really special baby was born under unique and um, you know, challenging circumstances. It is that God took on human flesh, that God left heaven and was born a man to live and dwell with us and for us. Um, so Jesus has a physical body who is also true God. Second Corinthians three, last passage. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Um, the Holy Spirit, who is also true God, does not have a physical body. Um, he is the spirit, the spirit of God. And he brings freedom, which is really interesting to consider because I think that's one of the last things 
that people think of. And we're going to talk a little bit about it in the sermon on Sunday. Um, we, we tend to think that religion in general, Christianity specifically, is the exact opposite of freedom. Um, religion um, limits your options and your choices. It forces you to do things or not to do things. It takes all of your freedom. Um, and what we're going to see is, again, you, you, you think back to what we've looked at, um, what it means that we are born with a sinful nature, that we are by nature sinful, that we have original sin. Um, the Bible will say that we are slaves to sin, bound in sin. And so what does it mean to be free? It means to be forgiven. It means to be set free from that sin. Um, to, to be set free is to actually be free to live the life that God, the creator, made you to live. And so it's sort of like, um, you know, if a, a little, little boy has a goldfish, right, and he sees it in the tank and he says, I feel so sorry for my pet goldfish. He's confined to living in that fish tank. So the little boy picks him up, takes him out of there, sets him on the counter because he wants to set him free. Well, yeah, now he's no longer bound by that fish tank, but guess what? He won't live because that is not, um, that is not the, the life that he was created to live, right? Um, and so it really is the picture of kind of the reversal that you and I are born as fish out of the fish tank. Um, and it is now by the grace of God that he puts us in. He puts us and recreates us and gives us a new life created in his image, um, renewed in that image day after day. Um, and, and now we are called and strengthened to live the life that God created for us. That's freedom, right? Um, so love that. Uh, it's one of my favorite words to just simply describe, you know, the Christian faith. What does it mean that you're a Christian? It means that I'm free. I'm free from guilt. I'm free from shame. I'm free from sin. I'm free from fear. I'm free from death. Um, all of the things that this world is so terrified of and wants to do away with. As a Christian, I'm free from those things. Um, I actually get to live a life free um, from all of those things. That's freedom. Okay. All right. So here's kind of where the rubber meets the road then. <clears throat> We've just looked at a lot of different things about what God says about himself. And here's the question. Can I believe in a God that I cannot fully understand? That's an important question, right? Um, it's a good one to wrestle with. Um, is there a benefit to doing so? Um, a lot of people would say, well, no, I want to be able to, to grasp God. I want to be able to fit him in between my ears. I want to be able to stick him in my pocket. I want to be able to diagram him, dissect him. I want to know everything about him. If I can't, then it can't be true and that can't be God. And here what we've looked at over the past, uh, you know, two weeks is um, the totality of God is beyond our understanding. The fullness of God is beyond our ability to fully grasp or comprehend. Um, but that doesn't mean that I can't or I shouldn't believe in a God like that. Um, there absolutely is a benefit in doing so. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The man without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Um, no, apart from faith, I'm never going to understand God. I'm never going to want anything to do with God. I'm never going to want to 
grow in my understanding and in my knowledge and in my faith and trust and love for this God. Um, because the man without the spirit, the person without the spirit of God wants nothing to do with God. Um, all of these things that we've been looking at, they're spiritually discerned. They're understood, they're grasped only, only by faith. And another passage is to look at it this way, Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Um, this is really the, the kind of way that you should want your God to be. Um, my God is so big and so great and so awesome um, that, that even what I know about him just scratches the surface. Um, I am not God, and therefore I cannot be on that same level, that same playing field of saying, yep, I got everything about God figured out. Because as we said last week, either that means I am God or God is not, right? Um, so this is the passage I use where I tell people, you know, if you, you come to this lesson on the Trinity and you walk out of the class and you say, thank you, pastor, I finally get the Trinity. Um, I say, stop, come back. Um, either I said something wrong or you misunderstood um, because you shouldn't walk out of this class saying, I finally get the Trinity um, because we can't um, because his, his, his paths are beyond tracing out. Um, and we'll look at the end of this, this class uh, under this lesson about how some people try. As a human being, it's, it's absolutely astounding. I could never have come up with the Trinity right. like that. Right. It makes every sense as a believer. Yeah. It's, it's perfect. Yeah, and again, you, you take a look at the gods that, that human beings have created over time, and they all make sense, right? Um, you know, Zeus, right? He's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a really, really powerful man, you know, um, and he's ticked off at the world, and he's got a lightning bolt in hand, and every time you screw up, that's why you get hurt. That's why you have troubles in your life is because, you know, he's zapping you with it. That makes sense, right? Um, you know, um, so much of, of, you know, you can tell a man-made religion when you look at it and go, yeah, I could have come up with that, right? That makes sense to me. Um, that, 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 that sounds exactly like what would have been born in my mind had I come up with a religion. Um, you look at Christianity and you go, no human being would have invented this um, because there's absolutely no reason that anyone would go, yep, I like that, right? <laughs> yeah, um, Christianity only makes sense if it's true. Um, and, and I think that's kind of, again, where you see that, you know, the Christian faith is rooted in history, not just in, well, you just got to believe it, right? We talked about that in Hebrews last night, right? Christian faith is more than just believing. Um, it's, it's confidence, um, and, and all of that kind of comes with it, right? Um, it's the, it's the historical fact, facts and truths and significance of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, Psalm 145, verse 3, uh, great is the Lord and most worthy of praise, his greatness no one can fathom, right? So the Bible is not hiding away uh, from this fact. It's not trying to say, look, if you just get down all of these books, all of these chapters, all of these verses, then you'll know everything there is to know about God. No, the Bible is very upfront about the fact that even if you could memorize the Bible word for word, letter for letter, you still would not know the greatness and, and be able to completely fathom God. 
right? That's not the point. Um, but you go back to what we looked at last week. Here's the goal. Um, to know and grow in what God has revealed to us about himself. Um, and, and so that's what we're, we're looking at. That's what we're focusing on. So here's the answer. Can I believe in a God that I cannot fully understand? Is there a benefit to doing so? Uh, no one can fully understand the teaching of the Trinity. And many of God's characteristics are beyond our complete comprehension as well. Christians readily acknowledge that these teachings are beyond our understanding, but we still find them we still find tremendous value in them. We take comfort in the fact that God is so much greater, wiser, and more powerful than we are. God's majesty and mystery inspire our highest praise. Okay. So here is our summary. There is only one true God, and yet he has revealed himself in the Bible as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each of the persons is God himself, and yet each of the persons is distinct from the other. You think of that picture um, that we filled in on the top of page uh, 11, right? That the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. Each of those little bars connect each of the, the persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to that title, that name, one God. And yet, the bar between Father and Son, right? The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. Um, so, like I said, that is the best way I think we can come up with at kind of letting everything that, that Scripture reveals to us about God's triune nature um, and let it all just be true. Right? The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, but the Father is not the Son, is not the Holy Spirit, is not the Father. Um, we can't understand how this is logically true. It's beyond our comprehension. Rather, the knowledge of our triune God inspires our humble and heartfelt prayers. God has revealed many other characteristics about himself. He is holy, powerful, just, gracious, and compassionate. He is omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent. We especially take comfort in the truth that God is gracious. He loves us even though we do not deserve his love and attention. The second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, entered into our world to win our forgiveness and eternal life by living a holy life in our place and suffering the punishment our sins deserve. We are saved from eternal death and hell because of the saving work that the Son of God accomplished on our behalf. Questions? The, uh, the application section, I mentioned this last week, at the end of every lesson, we are going to have uh, kind of a, in our worship life as we take what we just covered um, in the lesson and how do we see this kind of lived out, confessed on Sunday morning. So last week in lesson one and two, we looked at law and gospel. We talked about the confession and absolution. We readily and, and, and right at the beginning of the service, we admit who we are by nature, how we have failed against God, how we, we sin, um, what we deserve. And yet, here's the absolution. Here's the promise and the, the declaration of the gospel that um, your sins are forgiven in Christ. How do we live this out? How do we confess? How do we show week after week that God is triune, that this is who God is? Well, um, we do what Christians have been doing for um, almost two millennia. Um, and that is we confess 
a creed. And a creed is exactly that. It is a confession of faith. Um, even companies, businesses, per people, individuals have personal creeds, right? Uh, companies have creeds, who they are, what they stand for, what they believe. Um, and the Christian faith does as well. In fact, we have three um, kind of official creeds um, that really all Christians have agreed upon. And that is the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. Um, there's a little bit of a breakdown in there. I'm not going to go through each of those. You can look at those, just a little bit of a historical background. But what's interesting is um, I think that each of those creeds, um, specifically the last two, really are born out of uh, a need, a necessity. Um, uh, false teaching, heresy, um, um, unorthodox preaching and teaching um, was being spread throughout Christianity. And so Christians got together and said, look, we need to come up with an, an, an official confession. What do we believe? What, what unites us in faith? What do we believe about God and what he's done for us? Um, and that really kind of gives you a little bit of the background behind the Nicene and the Athanasian Creed. Um, the Apostles and Nicene Creed, those are the two of the more common ones that we do um, almost kind of on a um, Sunday to Sunday. Um, you know, we'll do one for a couple Sundays and then we'll switch up to the other one for a couple Sundays um, just so that we kind of make both of them known um, to, to people, how people kind of get them in their minds. But the Athanasian Creed, the last one there, is one that we don't use very often. And that's just simply because it's really, really long. Um, you, you can look in the, the front of the hymnal, and I just realized I didn't update these page numbers. Um, I got I to gotta update those with the new hymnal. Yeah, the page numbers are out of the, the old hymnal now. Um, I totally forgot that I put those in there. Um, but the good thing is in one, two, three, four Sundays, four Sundays will be Holy Trinity Sunday. Uh, June 12th, I believe, and we will, we will confess the Athanasian Creed. It's the one Sunday of the year where we do the Athanasian Creed, uh, where we focus kind of on the, the triune nature of, of God. So um, we'll hear that one soon enough. All right, what I want to close with tonight is um, what I, I really kind of enjoy, um, and that is uh, what I like to call the, the bad trinity analogies um, chances are you've probably heard all of these, um, but what I'd like to do is I'd like to help you unhear them. I'd like to hear you. Um, I'd like to help you forget them. I'd like to help you stop using them. I'd like to help equip you in correcting Christians that try to use them because none of these are true, um, but you hear them used all the time. So what is a way what is something in nature that we can look at and we can say, oh, this is what God's like? What can we point to that perfectly epitomizes and embodies God? Here's one example that people try to use. The Trinity is like water. Um, you have um, solid, liquid, gas, and yet at its core, you still have uh, two hydrogen atoms and one oxygen atom. It just comes in different states, solid, liquid, gas. 
Um, that seems like a pretty good analogy. That should work, right? Um, here's the problem. Look there in your notes on page 14. While it seems logical, God is not sometimes the Father, sometimes the Son, and sometimes the Spirit, which is what you need for, for all three of these. You cannot have the same hydrogen and oxygen atoms being both in the state of being a solid and a gas. It has to transition from one to the other. You can't have the same uh, atoms being the same thing, right? And so this is why Peter asked the question last week about God being of one essence, right? Um, that is important because that negates this, right? Um, God is eternally each, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, always at the same time. So picture the, the account that we looked at last week of the baptism of Jesus. Jesus is standing there in the water. The Holy Spirit comes down in the form of a dove, and the Father is speaking from heaven. Um, it's not as though Jesus was doing a sleight of hand trick um, and pulling strings and, you know, a make-believe uh, paper you know, dove floating above him and kind of like, you know, the man behind the curtain, Jesus is, you know, saying something under his breath and then looking around and going, did you guys hear that? I think it came from the clouds. No, um, all three are there <coughs> present at the same time. This bad analogy is nothing new, although I think using water to describe it might be somewhat modern, um, but the teaching itself is an ancient heresy um, called modalism. And it's been around since at least 215 AD. That's how, that's how old it is. Um, and it states that there is one God who really wears three masks or shows himself in three different ways at different times. So modalism just essentially says that um, there's one God, but he's got different modes of kind of coming to people. Sometimes he shows up in the mode of being a father. Sometimes it says Jesus. Sometimes it says the spirit. Um, and, and it's like, nope, um, that doesn't work, right? Um, because really what that destroys is the, the threeness of God, that he really is three persons, right? How about this one? Uh, oh, I forgot. We got to put a flaming X through those so we remember. Don't say God is like water. Uh, the next one, the Trinity is like a three-leaf clover, another popular one. Um, there's three leaves, um, but just one clover, right? One, one, one kind of plant. Um, and so you've got, you've got God the Father is one leaf, and God the Son is another leaf, and God the Holy Spirit is a third. Um, again, it sounds logical, uh, but each person of the Trinity is not merely 33.3% God. Um, you can't have just one clover and still have a three-leaf clover. You've got an incomplete clover um, or three-leaf clover, at least. Um, and so if you just have Jesus, this analogy would say you don't have all of God. You don't have the fullness of God. Um, so, uh, again... The Bible claims the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are each on their own 100% God. This bad analogy actually teaches the ancient heresy called tritheism, which isn't hard to figure out, right? Tri, three, theism, God. This is really just a way of teaching three gods, um, a, a plurality, right? Um, a polytheism. 
Um, or another one that is sort of similar called partialism, which again, you can kind of understand, right? Um, that um, God is kind of divided into parts. The father is a, a part of God. The son is a part of God um, and so on. And you see that one's old too, 500 AD, right? None of these things are new, um, even though the analogies or the pictures might be. Um, and tritheism and partialism states that there are three gods, all who share a similar nature, but not the exact same nature, thus destroying the unity of God. Okay. So we put a flaming X through that one. Don't say God is like a three-leaf clover. Another one, the Trinity is like um, the sun. Um, it is one star, but it gives off both light and heat. So all three of those things are needed in order for the sun to be the sun. You can't have the sun not give off light or not give off heat, right? So all three of those things are really needed, even though there's one um, star. Um, so it's used to teach that the Father, God the Father, is really the star. Um, he's the only true God. And he later created the Son, who is the light, and the Holy Spirit, who is like the heat, um, as lesser gods. Okay? Um, and so the, the, the Son is the star. That's kind of the, that's the actual thing. What comes off of that? What radiates off of that? What does the son produce? What does he make? What does it create? Well, that's what the father did with Jesus and with the Holy Spirit. Uh, this bad analogy actually teaches the ancient heresy of Arianism, not like white power, um, different kind of Arianism, um, in, in many ways just as, as dangerous, um, just as awful, um, or subordinationalism. Arianism is given that name because the, the guy who was really promoting this was, was Arius. That was his name. Um, he's actually the reason that the Nicene Creed was written. So if you go back and look at that background of the Nicene Creed, you'll see that his name, that's one of the things that he rejected. He did not believe and, and he refused to teach that Jesus was just as much God as the Father is God. He said, no, Jesus is a lesser God at best. And Christians said, no, that is not, that is not the, the message of the Bible. Um, of the Christian faith. Or subordinationalism, you kind of see that in there, right? Um, that you have the Father, then beneath him you have the Son, and beneath him you have the Spirit. But there's like a hierarchy. Um, there's a pecking order of God, each one being kind of submissive to the other. And each of those state that the essence of each person exists in a hierarchy and must denies that the Son and the Holy Spirit are one nature um, with the Father, which again, we create or we confess in the creed, right? Um, um, one nature with the Father, through him all things were made. So uh, fitting, let's put a, a flaming X through the sun. God is not like the sun. The Trinity is like an egg. Um, I mean, we talked about this one a little bit last week, right? You've got the shell, the hard shell of an egg. You've got the white part and you've got the yolk right? And you put all three of those things together, and what do you have? You got an egg, right? But they're, they're all kind of made of different parts, and that's kind of the problem, because if you just have a shell, you don't have a full egg. If you just have the yolk, you don't have a complete egg, right? You need all three of those parts together to have a complete egg. So you hopefully can already kind of see the problem 
Um, this is exactly like the three leaf clover. It says the exact same thing, just a different picture, different analogy. Um, so put an X through that one. And then one last one. Um, the Trinity is like a man who is a father, a husband, and a son. Um, so it all depends on kind of who the person is in relation to them, right? Um, he is a father to his children. He is a son to his parents, and he is a husband to his wife. And yet he's still the one person. He's still the one man. Um, and so people will kind of use that to say, well, this is kind of what God's like, right? He's just one person. He's just one God, but um, he is a father, a son, and a husband. Again, seems logical, um, but again, it fails in this regard. Um, it denies the distinction of persons and destroys the threeness of God. This is another analogy that really uh, illustrates the heresy of modalism. Um, and, and so it's really no different than the example that we looked at above of water. Because, um, and I don't want to use any states, but you can fill in the blank. Um, you know, the same man is not going to be the husband and the father to the same person. Hopefully. Right. Um, we've got some people online in Tennessee now, so I want to be careful, um, you know, what state I use, but, uh, you know, that, but that's kind of the point, right. Um, that it, it more kind of depends on who you are in relation to the man as who he is. But that doesn't matter when it comes to God, because God is always Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at the same time, right? Um, so you cross this one out, too, um, and you move on. So if you're asking yourself, then, okay, well, Pastor, then, you know, what can I say? Um, you can say this. The Trinity is like the Trinity. That's it. Um, anything else that you want to finish that statement with, um, we're going to have to add um, a new analogy and a new heresy, and we'll name it after you. Um, and, and, and so that's, that's the problem. There's, there's a point, there's a reason why there is nothing in creation that perfectly, completely, totally embodies God, because God is God and everything else is not right? The Trinity is like the Trinity. He is the only true God who is unlike anything else in all creation. And there's a passage that says this, um, and I love this, this verse. Ezekiel, or Exodus 15, 11, um, uh, is asked, who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory? And the answer, of course, is not an egg, not a three-leaf clover, not, not a man, not the sun, um, not any of those, right? The Trinity is like the Trinity. Um, and, and I pray that it is a comfort for you. So that is the end of lesson two. What questions, um, comments, thoughts do you have? Good? Good enough? <laughs> All right. Um, well, we'll end there then, and we'll begin lesson three next time. Um, good to see all of you tonight online, those of you in person, and uh, look forward to getting to God's creating power. We'll look at creation next time. Um, hope, you, hope you can join in. We'll, uh, we'll talk to you all later.
and uh, have a good week. Thanks, Thanks Pastor. Pastor. Nice to see you. Good night. Good night.